Welcome to everyone tuning in. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jillian Perkins. I'm the Director of Communications at Arnrich Messina, a Portland-based investment advisory firm, bringing our unique and disciplined process and philosophy to high net worth individuals and families, nonprofit endowments and foundations, and corporate clients. Welcome to part one of Investment Committee's More Than the Sum of Their Parts. Today we're here to talk about nonprofit organization investment committees. Why is it that some investment committees generate better investment outcomes than others? Is it because they're better investors? Or are there group dynamics at work that can systematically rob a committee of its ability to make strong decisions? Having worked with committees for more than 25 years, we wanted to share the knowledge that we've gained that can help investment committees function more effectively. So we recently published a white paper, Investment Committees More Than the Sum of Their Parts, which provides some strategies for committees to strengthen their decision-making and group processes, as well as address the pitfalls groups can fall prey to, in order to ultimately, hopefully, improve outcomes. Here to speak with us today are two contributors to the paper, senior consultants Chris Van Dyke and James Ellis. Both Chris and James have been working with investment committees for collectively more than 35 years and bring a wealth of experience in understanding what it is that makes committees successful, as well as what it is that can undermine them. So today, we get to pick their brains and learn more about what committees can do to become more effective and to improve their long-term results. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Chris and James. Thank you, Jillian. Um, so I want to start just by getting a little bit of background on your work with investment committees. So Chris, can you start and tell, uh, tell us how long you've worked with investment committees, what types of committees, and in what capacities? Yeah, so I've been working now for over 19 years, almost 20 years. And with respect to the committees I've worked with, it's been very much both for-profit, not-for-profit, uh, endowments, foundations, private foundations, what have you. And so in terms of just experience, I think it'll bring to bear quite a bit of experience working in a number of capacities. Mm -hmm. um, and James, the same thing. What is your history as it relates to working with investment committees? Uh, Jillian, my experience uh, has been over about 17 years. Uh, I've worked mostly with uh, endowment and foundation type of clients, but I've also worked on the corporate side as well, uh, discussing uh, DC and DB plans. Uh, I've also been on the sales side where I've been, you know, directly, uh, you know, pitching business to investment committees. So overall experience is about 17 years. Mm -hmm. Great. So we have a lot of experience and knowledge in this room today. So let's dive in and talk about investment committees. So as we start for the very beginning, um, looking at who goes on to an investment committee and how you make up a good investment committee that is going to be successful over the long term. Is there anything essential about the makeup of an investment committee, any particular background or experience among members that a committee needs to have in order to function well? I'll start with this, if you don't mind, James. Sure. Overall, what I've seen in terms of just a very strong operational group, it tends to be with respect to very strong financial backgrounds mm -hmm. as it relates to the really the goals and objectives you're seeking to achieve. Uh, this is from an investment committee standpoint. This doesn't necessarily drive down into the finance committees where you have more of an accounting role, et cetera. Uh, finance committees are very much different. Won't talk, we won't talk too much about those today. It's more on the investment committee level. Mm -hmm. Investment committees, generally speaking, if you have a very good diverse group of constituent individuals, that mm -hmm. tends to help quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to further your thoughts, Chris, uh, you know, having some uh, institutional uh, acumen when it comes to uh, portfolio management is always helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of successful business leaders uh, in each community uh, that, you know, make contributions and do 
uh, end up on uh, boards and, and investment committees in some capacity or another. And while you know these individuals are successful and are, uh, have been able to drive success in terms of an operation, sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate into uh, you know mm. portfolio management experience at the institutional level. Right. So. Uh, you know, uh, while those are important individuals to have on an investment committee, it should be a mix of, you know, investment, you know, somebody who has uh, investment acumen as well as business leaders in the community mm-hmm. as well. What, what do you think is the best size for an investment committee? How many people? Yeah, as far as that goes, Jillian, I'd say, you know, it should be an odd number. That way, if there a vote does come down huh. to, uh, you know, uh, there is a tiebreaker, I guess you could say, in the event there is a split vote. Uh, but I'd say, you know, the, the smaller committees tend to function better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've worked with uh, a, a not-for-profit that had a very large committee on the order of about 40 people. And it, it was just very difficult to, uh, you know, uh, get consensus. You're always having to recreate, rehash decisions. Uh, you know, there's constantly new members coming and uh, old members going. So uh, bigger is not necessarily better. I'd say smaller is better, definitely under 12, but more like five to seven mm-hmm. is ideal. 40 people. Chris, what's the largest committee you've worked with? Oh, an investment committee size, I would say it's been no more than, I'd say, low teens. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Between 11 and 13, I think, have been the most. And wow. generally speaking, that just happens to be due to the amount of time one can actually allocate. Right. To, because these are many instances, people that are not being paid, they're volunteer positions. Yes. And so just having that, a, a quorum in general is requires <gasps> a larger set of individuals to be on the committee. I would say those, if they're very much part, high participation level, I would agree with James, five to seven makes yeah. the most sense. Smaller. Would you rather see a committee where there's low turnover and a lot of longevity and tenure among the members, or is it better to have rotating in new and fresh committee members periodically or re- routinely? I would generally say that the longer term orientation is serves the committees much better in terms of their ability to maintain a disciplined mm. investment portfolio and process, mm-hmm. which tends to provide a lot better results because you have institutional knowledge as to what got you where you're at today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that that's a competing, competing view with respect to perhaps those that are looking to raise capital Mm -hmm. in so much as to bring individuals on investment committees to be engaged and be a part of that. So it's one of those balances that we have to strike. So as an investment advisor, we'd prefer obviously to have longevity. We see other competing forces. That makes sense. Yeah. And I've noticed, Jillian, newer members tend to come on and, uh, you know, want to uh, get swayed by emotions, want to time Mm. the market, uh, aren't as disciplined when it comes to investment policy as the longer tenured right. uh, members are. So, uh, you know, uh, th- that's that's a little bit of an issue, staying with investment policy and uh, keeping a long-term focus. So I'd say the longer-term uh, members uh, do have that institutional knowledge of past decisions, you know, the active versus passive debate, uh, you know, why are these alternative investments in the portfolio? Uh, the longer tenured members tend to uh, recall those discussions, whereas newer members, mm. you kind of have to keep reinventing those discussions and rehashing past decisions. That makes sense. Bringing people up to speed takes time. Um, so when you're working with investment committees, and obviously they have to make decisions frequently, are there particular decision-making processes that work best? Is it usually a vote? How does that work when you are making the decisions? Yeah, as far as that goes, Jillian, uh, you know, I've been on committees where there's one kind of central authoritarian, uh, you know, uh, leader of the investment committee, mm-hmm. uh, and everybody else just kind of falls into line. And other ones are more democratic in terms of their approach, where uh, the votes are, you know, discussed and you know vetted out. 
so as far as that goes, I, I think the Democratic uh, committees, uh, of course, uh, would be more beneficial to the overall organization mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, generally the authoritarian just kind of uh, has his or her idea and everybody else kind of falls into line. So that can lead to, uh, you know, herd behavior, if you will. Right. That makes sense. Um, speaking of authoritarian versus democratic, what do you hope for in an investment committee leader? Uh, and how does that affect the overall teamwork and effectiveness of the group? I was going to suggest really the basic tenets of a strong leader are that they are able to take in a lot of input and provide mm -hmm. a lot of inquiry to any process. And with that, you have a very good dialogue, a lot of buy-in with mm -hmm. respect to both strategy and implementation. Yeah. And generally speaking, they maintain just a very steady, consistent flow with respect to how the various information is disseminated. Mm -hmm. how decisions are made, and how strategy is ultimately implemented. And so I would suggest that ultimately the best leaders tend to maintain a very disciplined structure to how the investment program is implemented and ultimately managed. And it's also good to have an, uh, a leader of the investment committee who can uh, keep the committee on focus. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. many times, mm -hmm. many times, uh, you know, you'll be in an investment committee and, and get what I call into the weeds. And it's good to have a, a leader. And it, my job as consultant is to try and get the committee out of the weeds. But it's good to have, you know, the, uh, the, the, the chairman of the investment committee on your side to help in that regard. Absolutely. Um, so for investment committee members, if you have a new investment committee member or just in general for, for investment committee members, what information would you say is most essential for them to understand being on an investment committee? Yeah, as far as that goes, Jillian, uh, it's important for the new member to understand that, uh, you know, it's a, typically a long-term focus when it comes mm -hmm. to ENF type of clients. With uh, corporate clients, you know, with a DC or a DB plan, uh, the discussion is a little bit different. Uh, but the, the new members should understand this is a, a long-term uh, time horizon type of portfolio and trying to time the market in the short term mm -hmm. based on current news events or, uh, you know, emotions uh, is futile at best. Uh, mm -hmm. New committee members should also understand that cash is very corrosive uh, to an institutional portfolio with a long-term time horizon and that, uh, you know, cash is never going to be able to preserve real purchasing power in the portfolio, much less support a 5% spend rate. So a lot of new committee members uh, want to, are, are cash curious, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it's good to, to uh, you know, get that committee member out of the weeds of uh, thinking about cash as a, as, a, as a holding in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. I found that very much the long-term focus is essential. Uh, if you were to open up with anything, you would suggest, well, long term, what does that mean? Right. That's more than 10 years. That's perpetuity. That's wow. lifetimes upon lifetimes upon lifetimes, right? Right. And so from our perspective, you have to look at it and say, okay, well, then what else should I be looking at? And, well, the point is, is like we've been mentioning, is what got us here? Has it worked? Maintain this discipline and maintain just the strategy looking forward well beyond any short-term volatility. Right. Uh, we cannot time markets. That's the joke is, or the term is, that you have to get it right twice. You have to one pick when it's going to happen, and you then have to pick when you're going to get back in, mm -hmm. in terms of exiting and then re-entering the markets in terms of being able to access the capital markets. So from our perspective, that's a very difficult exercise, as James had alluded to, futility. And so from our perspective, it's just maintaining the course. Asset allocation does generate a vast proportion of one's return over the long run. 
And so let's just maintain that discipline strategy. Right. That makes sense. Um, so here's the kind of the crux of the issue. What problems and issues do you see among investment committees? What do they need to watch out for pitfalls, particularly in, when it comes to group dynamics and, as you mentioned, herd behavior? Yeah, I tend to look at it, James, um, if you don't mind me going. It, it looks from the perspective of behavioral biases. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are plenty to be had, and we all have them, uh, including even the strongest consultants. It's just a matter of understanding where those biases really lie mm-hmm. and how one can do the best that they can to really nullify any of those effects or at least build around them. And so the general points that I bring up, and I've done this with board education, with finance committee education, investment committee education, just comes around what are the biases that we generally have as humans, it's human nature to have them, and how do we necessarily work around them right. uh, to the full benefit of the not-for-profit, the investment portfolio, what have you. And so those can be anchoring, confirmation bias, et cetera. I know, James, you have a couple near and dear to your heart. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as far as the confirmation bias goes, uh, you know, whenever you terminate a manager or make a big shift in asset allocation, uh, you know, committee member com- committee members tend to compare, you know, the, the future performance to what would have happened in the past. So getting that confirmation bias is, uh, is always something that's a little bit of a challenge to overcome. Uh, Chris, as you mentioned, the anchoring of the portfolio, uh, you know, if there is a large drawdown in the markets, um, sometimes committee members are anchored uh, in terms of getting back to a certain dollar level, uh, you know, that, that can be a little, uh, you know, uh, that, could, that could cause some uh, confusion when it comes to making decisions in the heat of the moment. Um, and, and there's also a little bit of overconfidence. Somebody uh, may come in and, uh, you know, again, be successful, you know, in their day-to-day life and think that that success directly mm-hmm. translates in, into, you know, institutional portfolio management, which, right. you know, oftentimes isn't uh, simply the case. Uh, there's also a certain amount of uh, skepticism that uh, committee members sometimes have of the consultant. Uh, you know, they, they like to play stump the consultant, if you will, uh-huh. <laughs> where, uh, you know, they, they come up with questions that aren't really for the good of the order, but more meant to, you know, throw off the consultant, mm. um, you know, but, but that is part of the, the, the game. Um, I understand that there is skepticism of an advisor coming in, making suggestions that may feel difficult uh, to make, but that, that's our job. That's what we do. And that's, you know, what we live and breathe on a day-to-day basis. I think the one thing I'd add mm-hmm. is that there's this there's a general view that you know establishing or maintaining maybe with what peers are doing etc or staying with the herd mm-hmm. from a conventional standpoint is the predominant way to be successful. It's a, certainly a disciplined approach, no mm-hmm. doubt, um, but it's just a matter of maintaining a long-term strategy. We'll do much better then moving towards whatever peer mm. has been doing best recently. Right. So there's that recency bias that tends to take place. Yeah. The other point I've brought up and we've heard before is there's a, a general view, and this doesn't go, I mean, this isn't with any clients that we necessarily work with, but we've seen it before in terms of just looking at through various RFPs and prospects, you know, why succeed, uh, why not succeed conventionally when you can uh, maybe succeed more unconventionally, <laughs> right? right? Sure. Um, there's that whole view overall. So we, we see it from the standpoint of there are some opportunities. We bring those opportunities, and it's with a, a design mm-hmm. with respect to the client. Mm-hmm. So in another podcast, we'll take a deep dive on um, the difference between a discretionary consulting approach and a traditional consulting approach. Um, but just at a high level, what are some of the benefits that you see uh, of considering a discretionary engagement with your investment advisor? 
Yeah, as far as that goes, Jillian, uh, you know, we, we are uh, big fans of uh, discretionary investment management uh, just because of the fact that committee members, you know, they, they have their day-to-day lives. They, you know, are involved in their personal lives as well. And so it, it does take a lot of effort uh, on, in terms of the investment committee members getting up to speed for these quarterly meetings. And most of the times they do not. Um, you know, they... They don't review the materials beforehand. Now, now that it, maybe that's the exception more than the norm, but nonetheless, it does take a lot of time to get ready for the meetings to look over, you know, 100 pages of material, and uh, you know, uh, come in and add to the discussion. So it removes that burden from the investment committee, committee members. It also removes a certain amount mm-hmm. of burden from the administrative staff as well, implementing new ideas into the portfolio, processing trades, rebalancing, raising cash, things of that nature. So mm-hmm. it's good uh, from a time perspective. Uh, and Chris, you probably have some thoughts on the actual portfolio management where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, absolutely. I think James had it spot on. It's time. Yeah. If you can allocate a couple hours once a quarter to managing a large institutional portfolio, that seems like a very modest amount of time. Yeah. In fact, I would suggest you're shortchanging one's ability to really manage the investment portfolio. Now, in many instances, the the counter to that would be while you are hiring managers to honestly take the day-to-day we're looking at long-term strategy and and with that i would then suggest that governance might be the best Mm -hmm. strategy and or responsibility and so with governance then becomes more monitoring and with monitoring then suggests that you should allow for discretion on the day-to-day cash flows cash needs manager implementation what have you and that's where we tend to see the light really turn on for a lot of committees mm-hmm. that have moved to discretion. They then bring on new committee members that then look back and say, wow, we actually used to do that right. with our time. How could we maintain a focus on long-term strategy yeah. when we're looking backwards at performance and monitoring and evaluation right. and trying to make very much more minor adjustments to a portfolio as opposed to the broad scheme, yeah. which is long-term objective of the benefit of that mission and or purpose of the uh, investment portfolio. Right. That's the committee focus on the big picture. Yes, yeah, definitely. And most investment committees generally accept uh, the consultant's recommendations. So it just speeds up the time frame of, you know, idea generation from our research staff, uh, you know, an approval at our portfolio management committee uh, to implementation into the client portfolios. That goes from, you know, uh, two quarters potentially down to a week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the ideas that we generate uh, become implemented much, uh, much quicker and more in a more timely fashion. Much more efficient. Um, any other advice for committees that you would like to offer how today? Well, I would suggest, you know, it really comes down to maintaining the most amount of collaboration and communication. The more offline discussions that take place in terms of maintaining just out of the normal course of the quarterly meeting cycle, the better the results will be, whether it be not only from the governance and monitoring perspective and long-term strategy perspective, but also just generally from where everyone is in terms of where they fall in when they all meet with respect to each quarterly meeting, meaning everyone's on the same page, they have the institutional background, and we're all working in the same spot from the same chapter in the book, so to speak. Right. And I think, uh, you know, uh, final thoughts, Jillian, are, uh, you know, for uh, to get the most out of your advisory relationship is to keep a long-term time horizon, mm-hmm. uh, let the experts be experts, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, don't hold cash as a position <laughs> in the portfolio. 
Uh, wonderful. Well, I really appreciate both of you sharing your insights and your advice, uh, and I think our audience will too. You've provided some really helpful practical solutions for improving investment committee structures and decision-making processes. So I want to just say a huge thank you to both of you, Chris and James, for being here today. Look for part two of this podcast series coming soon in which we will go deeper into traditional versus discretionary advisory services and how to choose a service model that best fits your needs. If you want to learn more and read our white paper, uh, Investment Committees, More Than the Sum of Their Parts, visit our website at arnurchmessina.com. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Arnurch Messina's podcast. Please see the podcast description for important copyright and disclaimer information.